this thing called the anointing, man, this is something different. This will change your life. It really will if you receive it. So I'm just going to tell you real quick, for those of you that might be new to some of this um, biblical terminology, you don't, you don't go around in your everyday life talking about the anointing or being anointed very often, uh, at least not if you're, if you're not a Christian or in, more in particular a, a spirit-filled Christian. I don't mean that as a slight, but I just don't hear a whole lot about it in, in uh, other forms of, of Christianity even, and that's okay for those forms, but man, it's, it's an amazing thing. You know what Jesus Christ means? Jesus is a name. Christ is not. Jesus is uh, it's, it's a Hebrew name. It's a rendered into Greek and then rendered into English as Jesus because of the Greek translation. But more accurately, it would be Joshua because of the Hebrew terminology of Yeshua. And Yeshua means Jehovah, our salvation, which really isn't true. because There's no J in Hebrew. It really means Yahweh, our salvation. But we uh, we translate that Jehovah. It means Yahweh, our salvation. And then Christ means the anointing or the anointed one. That is the difference between every other Yeshua that was born in Israel and this Yeshua. It's not Yeshua ben Yusef or Jesus, son of Joseph, which it would have been, but it is Yeshua, the anointed one. That's the difference between him and every other Joshua. That's the difference between him and every other human being that's ever been born on the face of the planet is that he was born from day one anointed and he was the anointed one. And when they lost track of him and he was 12 years old and they found him in the temple, the old men that had been studying their entire lives couldn't believe it because of the authority of his questions and his answers because of the anointing. He was the anointed one. How many times did we hear Jesus decide that it was too much and he wanted to give up? It seems like we heard him say that one time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the human part of him maybe was feeling that way to a degree, but it's kind of like the baptism that he allowed John to perform on him in the Jordan River. It was more for an example and I'm going to do my best to prove that to you before we get done with the sermon today. But he turned right around after that momentary glitch, if you will, which is really not a glitch. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. How many times have we been led down a valley of decision? And right at the end, right before the rising of the sun, if you will, we've decided Either we missed it or God missed it or we're fighting something else. We're ready to give up and we just want our old life back or the old way back or we want to turn around. How many times have you been in the thick of it and decided, you know what, God, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. How many times have you been dealing with your kids and you weren't liking the direction they were going and you felt fine throwing your hands up and saying, nevertheless, how many times have you been dealing with your spouse and you felt fine throwing your hands up saying, nevertheless, how many times has your finances been down to pennies or negative and you didn't worry about it? You said, God, I love you and I'm seeking you and I'm trying my best to worship you. And that tells me that I'm in your will. So nevertheless, I'm on my knees in the garden of Gethsemane and it hurts real bad. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the proper response, but it's a difficult it's a difficult journey to get there. That was not supposed to be the introduction, so I hope that helped you a little bit. 
Let's go to Exodus chapter 30, verse number 23. What I was supposed to say was, if you're not familiar uh, with some of this um, Christian terminology or spiritual terminology, you're going to have to set aside uh, your, your doubts and your contrivances for a moment and realize it's, it's like as if you went to math class or algebra or geometry, whatever you want to call it. If you were going to a higher level mathematics program, you would have to know what a cosine, sine, and tangent was. You'd have to know the difference between logarithms and algorithms and things of that nature. You'd have to have some type of working knowledge of calculus and uh, at least a, a base knowledge of algebra and geometry if you're going to learn anything at all. And we would be using that terminology, and you wouldn't think that it was odd because we're talking about math. So this morning we're talking about the Bible. And I want you to understand we're going to be using biblical terminology. I don't usually preface my messages that way, so I don't know, uh, you know, maybe who that's for, but I just want you to be able to set aside when it, I don't want to say anointing and then your reaction be, what the heck are they talking about anointing? Nobody talks like that. It's the Bible and it's very importante. Exodus chapter 30, verse number 23 says, take also unto thee principal spices. I'm reading out of the King James version. Of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, of sweet cinnamon, half as much, 250 shekels, of sweet calamus, 250 shekels, and of cassia, 500 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil, olive oil, one hen. And you shall make of it a holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be a holy anointing oil. So these are the ingredients to the anointing oil that we find in the Old Testament. Let me tell you why that's important. Because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that God gave us first the natural things and secondarily the spiritual things. The reason he did that was as Jesus approached Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and he told them, if I speak to you of earthly things and you cannot understand them, how can I possibly speak to you about heavenly things? Why is that true? Well, in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, it tells us that the invisible things of the world, everybody say spiritual things, that you cannot see, the invisible things of the world are clearly seen. How do we see invisible or spiritual things? It goes on to tell us they're clearly seen, being understood by the things that he made. Everybody say natural. Even his eternal power in Godhead so that we're without excuse. In other words, God is saying, I know you can't see me. I know you can't see right now as the minister is ministering that in the spiritual realm there is seed of my word going out and it's being planted into the soil of your soul because God made you from the dust of the earth and he breathed a living soul into man. So as we plant that seed, it goes into the soil, the water of my word, the light of my spirit, the photosynthesis that takes place, the self-nurturing and nutrients that are provided by the Holy Spirit and it allows you to grow because we can't see that. He gave us plants to be able to see that. We take a physical seed, we put it in the soil. We have to water it, it has to have sunlight. We see what happens, it begins to grow. We study it a little deeper, we find that it has the ability to feed itself. And then the Bible says the kingdom of God is within you. You have no need that any man teach you if you have the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't go to church or you shouldn't be taught. It means that between you and the Holy Ghost, you don't have to lose your faith between Sundays. Or Sundays and Wednesdays, however often you go to church, which should be every Sunday and Wednesday. You can talk to me about that later if you need to know why. So we see here in verse 23 of Exodus chapter 30, 
that there are five ingredients to the anointing oil. So he gave us that natural example to show us how something works in the spiritual realm. Last week, we talked about what the anointing actually is, which I feel like it's lost in a lot of teachings about the anointing. Don't have time to go over that whole uh, sermon, but you can find it online on our podcast. But uh, to put it into one brief sentence, the anointing, the easiest way to think about it is God on flesh or on you doing what you cannot do, but only God can do. The more anointed you are, the more power you walk in to take care of the things that you need to take care of on the path of the calling to which you are called. You don't have to be part of the fivefold ministry in order to be anointed. God has an anointing for you where you are now. You need, an, you need the anointing to be a godly father to your children. You need the anointing to be a godly mother to your children. You need the anointing to be a godly spouse. You need the anointing to be a church member who is set up in front of either other church members or the community as an example of a person of faith. Because day to day, Paul says, there's a war in my own members. My spirit wants to follow after God, but my flesh wants to follow after the enemy. And without the onset of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be very difficult for you to choose rightly. You need a little bit of anointing just to make the choice. You need a little bit more to walk up to somebody that is sick and lay hands on them and believe and operate in the way that the Bible says that these signs shall follow they that believe. In order to cast out demons, I know that sounds ridiculous to today's uh, modern society. But in reality, we all understand that there's an electromagnetic field. We all understand there's a source of energy that surrounds every person. Call it an aura. Call it whatever you want. I don't want to get into the new age. I'd rather stand with the God's old age wisdom, which calls it demonic activity and or angelic or activity of the Holy Spirit, one or the other. But negative energy causes negative reactions. We're laying hands on people in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the most positive influence that ever came into this earth, the natural son of God. And in his name, we're trying to cast out what people want to call negative energy. The Bible calls demonic forces. And that's what I believe. You need the anointing to believe that, to lay hands on somebody to cast that out. You need the anointing to speak in Jesus' name and see the sick be healed. You need the anointing to follow, not to follow the signs, but that the signs would follow you in all of your ministry. And that doesn't mean you need a pulpit or a stage. You need it when you walk out that back door on the way to your car. You need it when you stick your hand out the window and give the homeless guy a couple of dollars because he needs to know that's in Jesus' name. And he might need prayer right then. Everybody say, I need the anointing. How do I get it? Don't say that. I was mean. How do I get it? Well, first of all, let's look at the natural example, and maybe it can tell us a couple of things. The natural example, there are five ingredients. Immediately, that takes my mind forward to where the Bible tells us that God has implemented a five-fold ministry inside of the church. That there are teachers, preachers, evangelists, apostles, and prophets. Through those five ministries that happen inside the church, which is the body of Christ. Everybody say the body of Christ. You might not think about it when you say it, but what you just said is the body of the anointing. Amen? So inside of the body of the anointing, there's a five-fold ministry to reach the five senses of every human being that are based on the five ingredients of the anointing oil so that we can be edified and equipped as the saints to walk outside the sanctuary underneath that full anointing and minister inside of this world and pull lost souls in to understand who their Lord and Savior is. Does that make sense? So we have the five, 
And that through those five, you can gain access, if you will, to the anointing. Why do we really need the anointing? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27. Isaiah 10 and 27 says, It shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off of thy shoulder and his yoke from off of thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Isaiah 10 and 27 is referring to the burden and the yoke of the enemy. That his burden shall be taken away and his yoke shall be taken off of your neck and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Little secret, the only scripture I have found that compares something that we can physically manifest in order to bring forth the anointing is a little scripture in the book of Psalms. I believe it's 103 that says how beautiful it is when brethren dwell together. If it is 103, it's verse 1. I don't know if you can look that up. When brethren dwell together, it is like the oil that ran down the beard of Aaron. Aaron is the high priest. That oil is the anointing oil, like the dew of Hermon, it says. In other words, unity, everybody say unity, Unity. brings forth the anointing. Where does unity happen? Happens inside the church. Where does the fivefold ministry happen? Happens inside the church. How many ingredients are there to the anointing oil? There are five. So when those five things come together and we stand unified inside of the church, we have the ability to access the and call down, if you will, the anointing of God because we are fulfilling his word. We have the ministry. We have the unity. God, we want the anointing. We want the anointing. Amen. We want the yoke of the enemy to be destroyed. That's why we want the anointing. So what our, our purpose is in this series is taking a deeper look at each one of those five ingredients. We're going to start with the very first one, which is called the myrrh. Myrrh is the first ingredient that is mentioned in the anointing oil found in Exodus chapter 30. So let's talk a little bit about naturally what myrrh is. Myrrh is a product of a gum tree found in the regions of Arabia. There are a couple of ways that they exude the myrrh. The best way to think of it is like to think of it like maple syrup or sap. The way that they would sometimes stick a spigot inside of a tree and let the syrup or the sap run out. The uh, myrrh tree, actually, uh, you could just walk up to it and all day long, for all of its life, it just naturally exudes this sappy byproduct that we call myrrh, this fragrant byproduct that's mainly used as embalming fluid. We'll get into that in a minute. There's uh, a couple of problems that people have with extracting the myrrh for commercial purposes, however. Let me see how I want to tell this story. You know, when Jesus Christ was born... It says some wise men showed up to the manger, if you will. Now, that's not right when he was born. He was at least two years old by the time they got there. Amen, brother. And we tend to say there were three wise men, but it never says that. It just gives you three gifts that were brought. Especially the gold, you would think, would be hard for just one person to bring. But also the frankincense and the myrrh. And the amount that they might have or could have brought it, 
uh, you would think it'd be actually more than three. And when you study these magi, these men that would travel and follow the stars uh, to the place where he was born, they usually traveled in bigger groups than three. People uh, estimate between seven to twelve. That's just a side note, a little nugget for you can study that out. It really doesn't matter. The gifts that were given were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh is very, very important because it was there at the beginning, so to speak, and it was also present at the end. And we'll read a scripture. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, the one that took the body of Christ, and Nicodemus actually was with him. And when they went to bury him, uh, they took myrrh with them because of the fact that it was an embalming fluid. And also ingredient number one in the anointing. Everybody say Christ. So how did he, how did he exude this myrrh? How did he personify that in his life? Well, it's very fragrant. Uh, most of, at least four out of the five ingredients in the anointing oil were very fragrant, which is why we're calling this series The Scent of the Anointing. And I'm going to apply that here in a moment, and I think it's going to hopefully make a huge impact on your life. But this myrrh is, very, is a very fragrant oil, if you will, uh, sappy, thick oil, and, and part of, uh, obviously, the ingredients to the anointing. So what they would do is they would go up to this tree, and it would be naturally exuding myrrh. If they just needed a little bit, that was good enough. But because... It wasn't good enough for commercial use. What they would do back in the day is they would take whips, mainly called a cat of nine tails, and they would go out to this tree, and it had metal, and it had different things on it. How many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ? It was, it was reminiscent of what they used in that movie. And they would literally take it out to this tree, and they would start to beat it and scar it, because the deeper they could scar it and the more bark they could beat off of it, the more oil or the more myrrh they could get to exude in an unnatural amount, and the more that they could then render... Uh, for commercial use. But the thing about it is they never got anything out of the tree that it wasn't willing to give already. The way that I try to uh, to visualize this story for you and for me when it comes to the myrrh of the anointed one, Jesus Christ, think of it modern day like a man walking down a dark alley. For some reason, I think of New York City, I think because it doesn't get cold enough here for this visual of mine. Um, how many, are y'all comfortable? Does it feel all right? We have the heater on, which is torture to me, but are y'all, y'all feel good? Yeah, a little warm. I thought so. I wanted to take the chairs outside and have a service out there, but I didn't think anybody else would want to. So, uh, anyway, the, visualize a man uh, wearing a very nice coat, a rich man, if you will, walking down the sidewalk and he looks down the alleyway and sees some homeless guys uh, gathered around a barrel with the fire coming out of it. The scene that you see, uh, oftentimes in the movies, and they're freezing, and one of them has on just a short sleeve T-shirt. And the man decides, you know what? He just got out of a uh, out of a night mass or a night church service, and he wants to do a good deed and walk down that alley and just give the man his coat because it has, is no problem for him to go buy another coat. So he walks down the alleyway with a big smile on his face. As the closer that he gets, he starts to take his coat off, and then all of a sudden, some of the some of the guy's friends, not the guy with the coat, but the homeless guy jump out of the dark shadows of the alley and begin to beat the man. And they beat him and they beat him and they beat him relentlessly to within an inch of his life. And with his last breath, he looks up and the only thing that he can think of in that last moment to say is, is why? Why did that just happen? And they say, because we wanted your coat. And of course, he doesn't have time to tell them, but that's the reason that he walked down there in the first place. When I study the myrrh tree, what I find out is that there were two ways to get the myrrh out. You could just wait 
for what it exuded naturally, or you could scar the tree and exude an unnatural amount of oil for commercial use. But the most pure form of myrrh, when tested, is literally much more pure to the point where it, it, it literally works differently and smells differently if you just get the, the myrrh that exudes naturally out of the tree, if you can just wait on it. So I look at the life of Jesus Christ and look at the Bible that says he gave us the natural things to understand the spiritual. And obviously the way they exuded the myrrh relates very well to the cross and on his way and how much he was tortured and how much he was beat to the point where he literally suffered death on the cross. And what we got from him was his blood that he was willing to give anyway. All of the beating, all of the torment, all of the torture didn't gain us access into anything that he wasn't already willing to give. So then I started looking at it. I'm like, well, what did we ever get the most pure form? And it takes me back to what we talked to earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to paint this picture for you in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says that God only personally created two men. And I want you to pay attention. He created Adam in the very beginning. And he created Jesus Christ. Every other human being that has been born on the face of this earth was born from procreation of a man and a woman as God gave us that ability. Adam was not and Jesus was not. Which is why the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. In the beginning, the first man that God ever created, he put him inside of a garden. And inside of the garden, the man explicitly disobeyed. And he disobeyed by eating fruit that hung on a tree. That his wife, his bride, if you will, offered up to him this fruit and he decided to take a bite of it himself. He got kicked out of the garden and when he got kicked out of the garden, the curse that God gave him was actually not on his life but on the ground. And he said, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth all the days of your life and you're going to have to work it by the sweat of your brow. The second Adam, what he did was he was not created inside of a garden. But he made his way into a garden. And inside of that garden where the first Adam disobeyed, he explicitly obeyed. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And where the first Adam got kicked out and the ground was cursed by bringing forth thorns and thistles, the second Adam would take the thorns and the thistles on his head. And where God said, you're going to have to work it by the sweat of your brow. Inside of that garden, he got down and prayed until the sweat of his brow turned into blood. He prayed so hard that his capillaries burst. And the Bible says, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, this man is the first fruits of God. And the book of Acts in chapter 4, it says that he was hung on the tree of Calvary. So Jesus Christ literally was the first fruits hung on a tree. The thing that made us fall in the beginning was disobeying God by eating fruit that hung on a tree inside of a garden. The thing that redeemed us was the fruit getting back into the garden, eventually getting hung on a tree. And if we eat of that first fruit, the very thing that made us fall is the thing that redeems us. Which is an amazing story, but what gets lost in there sometimes is when he got down on his hands and his knees, and this relates to me and you. Everybody say, I want the anointing. Now, I just tricked you because after I tell you this, you might not want it anymore, but you already said it's too late. Trust me, you need it, but it hurts a little bit. He got down on his hands and his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you got to think about, as he was down on the ground, uh, crying out in pain and agony and stress for probably hours. You're talking about a man that had formerly walked on the water. You're talking about a man that laid hands on blind people and they received their sight. You're talking about a man that picked up an ear 
right afterwards and place it on a man's head and it, it just magically got sewn back on, if you will. You're talking about a man who is in the presence of God the Father, who is the only begotten of the Father, who had no, who had no qualm about saying, I and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You're talking about a man who had walked up on the Mount of Transfiguration and be changed in front of the eyes of his disciples. You're talking about Jesus and he's having trouble as he's on his hands and knees inside of this garden. Why is he having trouble? A lot of people think he's down here having trouble because he understands the torturous pain of uh, the path to the cross, not to mention the death on the cross. And of course, that's part of it. But more than that, what he is doing is he's down on his knees, having a, a moment, wondering, Father, I know the anointing that you've anointed me with, but I'm not sure if I can pay the price. So if there's any way, take this cup. And let it pass from me. But nevertheless, <coughs> excuse me, not my will. Whew, thank you, Lord. But thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. Now, that might sound like a simple prayer. And it might sound like the simplest prayer in the world to say, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's not the hard part. The hard part's walking into that garden. You don't really know where the entrance is. You don't really know that you're there until you're there. What you need to do along the way, Christ took three and a half years ministering and also in his mind preparing for that moment. The anointing oil had five spices, but they were designated in a very specific way. Okay, The anointing didn't come from those ingredients just being thrown together in a bowl it came from the preparation the proper preparation of those ingredients mixed together see there's no anointing in an evangelist uh having issue and speaking something different than the pastor that's over the house there's no anointing in a prophet running up to the front and trying to talk over a teacher or a teacher trying to teach over an evangelist or all of the ministers and all the fivefold ministry inside the kingdom of god and the body of christ all having a cat fight against each other there's no anointing in that just because they were called to that position and they're walking their calling doesn't mean that the anointing naturally occurs there needs to be preparation to the ingredients I believe I remember Paul writing somewhere in the scriptures, do not let a novice take the pulpit. Why is that? Because the anointing is needed and the anointing is precious and the anointing does not come without preparation. You can't just throw the ingredients in a bowl and hope that it works out. Everybody say preparation. preparation. So you want the anointing. Yes, you do. But you want to be prepared for that anointing. In America, that's very hard to understand because we have Burger King. We want it our way right away. Drive through religion. You walk into a house of God, and I'm not saying this one, but any house of God where you believe, and it's obvious there's an anointed man of God at the front or an anointed woman of God teaching or an anointed person somewhere and that you sit underneath their ministry and you know that they're anointed, and immediately you want that. A lot of us do, especially if you're called that. You want to be able to do that if it's your calling. I know as soon as I saw a man preach under the anointing in person, I knew I was called and I knew I wanted to do that. I thought I would be able to do it next week if I just studied real hard. 
So what I did was I memorized his sermons. I'm not telling you the truth. And I started a Bible study actually in Clear Lake. The first Bible study I had, I just took one of his tapes and I hit play and I thought everyone would be as excited as I was to learn about the tabernacle. They were weirded out. They were uncomfortable. They were sitting in my living room looking at each other like, Are we li- this? I didn't even know they made cassette tapes. Are we listening to this? Yeah, I thought it was exciting. So I realized that wasn't going to work. So I would just memorize what was on the tapes and I would just repeat it. And I didn't know enough to know how ridiculous that was. I look back on it now and it's embarrassing. And I, you know, and I had the same, you had, uh, why can't more people show up? There's only ever three or four people here and we've had hundreds of people come through, but nobody six. Why is that? Because a lot of these people, they've, they've been touched by the anointing, even if they didn't know what to call it. They felt it before. And it wasn't going on inside of that house because I wasn't prepared. I was trying to live off somebody else's anointing. I didn't realize it was going to take seven or eight years to get there. So you might see an anointed service or an anointed man or woman of God and decide that what you're going to do, I'm not talking about just in a church house, but maybe somebody that's really anointed when they go out there on the streets and pray for people and minister to people. Maybe you've seen some documentaries about these guys that are anointed, just walking around Jerusalem, healing people or walking around Africa, healing people and doing amazing things. And you decide, you know what, I'm going to go on a mission trip. I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be that woman. I'm going to do that because God just wants me to be available because somebody told you that in a sermon once upon a time and availability does mean a lot to God. Ability also means a lot to God. availability a lot of times does mean a little bit more but it's not just being available it's being prepared the way you get prepared is you don't try to step into the front of the line you become a good follower of people that you believe in and you trust and if it's i'll use myself as an example if you're trying to follow my lead there's nothing i can do to shut the door when god wants you to take over you'll take over And there's nothing I can do to open the door. I'm going to tell you in a minute that I can, but what happens when that happens is not good. And it's all according to the timing of God. So you've got to trust him in the preparation. I did not mean to spend that much time on that. So again, I don't know. Somebody, y'all are messing up my sermon today. So I hope y'all are, I hope y'all are getting something good. The word myrrh itself is found 14 times in the Bible, and I find this to be an awesome thing. Of course, seven times, too, witnessing unto perfection. But eight of the references are in the Song of Solomon, which is is very interesting because the Song of Solomon is a a much understudied and underappreciated book of the Bible. You hardly ever hear sermons based out of the Song of Solomon. You don't even hear a lot of scripture references and other sermons to the Song of Solomon. And to be quite honest... As a man, uh, the first time reading the Bible, you're going to be very uncomfortable with the Song of Solomon. It's going to take you a minute. And I'm not trying to be funny. Just read it one time. And it's hard to, you've got to be able to put in perspective that we are the bride and he is the groom. Before you even undertake that book, that's one of the books that you're going to go, and I'm going to skip. In the Song of Solomon, this word myrrh appears more often than anywhere else in the Word of God. That is unique. It suggests the prominent thought symbolized by myrrh is love. The very first reference, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 13. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved. Myrrh is an emblem of love. In verse 13, his cheeks are a bed of spices, speaking of God as sweet as flowers. His lips are lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. Love. The final reference is in John chapter 19, verse 39. 
final reference to myrrh. And it talks about the story that I told you earlier. It's the story of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus taking the body of Christ and preparing it with myrrh. Everybody say love. Myrrh is a bittersweet spice. You see the bitterness and how it's extruded. You see the sweetness and how it's described. In the spiritual sense, the bitterness of the myrrh, and I want you to pay attention. We're going to go somewhere and we're going to end on this thought. The bitterness of the myrrh is expressed in the pain, not of the suffering of death, but in the contradiction of sinners upon himself. Highlighted in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12 and 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy, everybody say the joy, that was set before him endured the cross. Remember the video, Joyride? you got to have a childlike faith and a childlike approach to this thing. What I want to tell you this morning when I get through with this sermon is that the anointing, if you're able to sit under it, if you're able to apply it, the anointing will change your life. If you are a Christian right now, get ready to understand a whole new meaning of what it is to be a Christian tomorrow. If you desire the anointing, if you sit under the anointing, if you apply the anointing, if you endure the preparation of the anointing, this life will become no longer about you, no longer about your bank account, no longer about what you can accomplish, but it will be about how much can you possibly do with the tens of thousands of days that you may have left on this earth for the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. And you'll love it. I cannot express to you and explain to you why it is more fun to walk in the anointing of God than to walk into the club late at night. It's impossible for me to describe because the Bible says it's joy. What does it say? Unspeakable and full of glory. So I guess I'd be going against the word if I tried to speak to you about how joyful that joy is. I can't explain it. It can only be experienced. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the payment for the anointing. I'm sorry, the payoff for the anointing. Verse three, for consider him that endured not the cross, not the death, not the pain, and the agony, but he endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself lest you be wearied and faint in your mind because you have resisted, but you've not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. That's a big deal. What does that mean? His very presence in a world where all was against God, the Bible says he is the light of the world and the darkness comprehended it not. He came into his own and his own could not comprehend him, could not understand him, rejected him. His very presence in a world where all is geared against God is bitterness to him. How his perfect soul, enjoying the fullest communion with his father, recognized what an evil and bitter thing it was for men to forsake the Lord. Who can measure sin more than the sinless one? 
this is what I relate it to in the natural world. And um, we really are going to close with this thought, so our worship team can go ahead and come up. The people that are designated with the authority to recognize counterfeit money in the United States and sometimes abroad are the Secret Service, believe it or not. The men of the Secret Service are trained. Now, these aren't the same guys that guard the presidents. Another branch of the Secret Service are trained to um, recognize counterfeit currency or false money. The way that they are trained is very unique. It's not what a lot of people would think. They have to sit for years in a room where they are handed over and over and over and over again real money. Only real money. They can only see real $20 bills, real $50 bills, real $100 bills. Never are they allowed to ever look at a counterfeit dollar bill of any denomination. The reason is they get so used to what the real thing looks like that if they ever encounter a false one, they know it right away because they understand the real so much. It must have been very difficult for Jesus Christ every day of his life to walk among self-righteous people, entitled people, that he reached out to. He's like a secret service agent of the Holy Spirit. He only knows the real and he knows it so well. And he's sent here to walk among the false. That's got to be like, oh, uncomfortable, claustrophobic. And then he had this designation, this ministry to reach out to those who are after another spirit, those who have rejected God, those who fall short of the real day in and day out. And he had to. Uh, reach out and lay hands on people that were blind and give them their sight. Knowing that as soon as they their eyeballs were open, they, were, they would eventually use it for evil. Hoping they would repent of that on a daily basis. But, man, I mean, think about Jesus. I mean, me and you could sort of comprehend how it might even be an easier life following God if you were blind sometimes. We don't wish that upon ourselves or anybody else. But could you imagine Jesus Christ laying hands on a blind person knowing full well they might do better if they didn't see all the sin and all the temptation that was around them? I might be taking that too far, but if I could think of it, I'm sure he thought of it. The real, having to lay hands on, on the fake that were, that were deaf, inadequate, in need, sick, weary, Dying, knowing that God created them for the ability to do the opposite. Having to speak life into those that were, uh, that were okay with death. Having to try to lead God's own creation back into the light. When in the beginning he created them with nothing but light. And they strove so far away from him. And he was given the anointing in order to anoint those who did not have the real anointing so that they might have a chance to follow the light back to the source, the real, the fake inside of the real. And then we decide 
to become Christians. Which means we have taken on the title of little anointed ones. And hopefully we've really done that. You say you want to be anointed. But are you willing to pay with the myrrh? You want to be anointed? You're going to have to be willing to get beat half to death in order to produce what you were willing to give already. You want to be anointed? The first ingredient is embalming fluid. Are you ready to die? To sin? Are you ready to become a new creation? You want to be anointed? It's not the most fun, powerful hour of your week. It's not the most entertaining time of your week on Sunday morning. It's not a show. It's not a concert. It's not feel good time. It's not the coolest thing to do. It's not just a community gathering. It's not a country club. You want to be anointed? The first ingredient is the myrrh. How many people walk in the back door, the front door of a sanctuary and are encouraged and ready to die to their old self, to the sin that so easily beset them so they could just walk in the first ingredient of an anointing in which there are five, not even knowing what the rest are of the four, ready to be anointed like he was anointed so we can walk into a world that doesn't like us the way it didn't like him, lay hands on those that don't know God, hoping they'll come to know God, willing to take the beating halfway to death so that we can bring them to the Savior that we wanted to bring them to in the first place. You want to be anointed... You got to be willing. See, God, excuse me, God has called so many people in a calling or to a ministry, if you will. He's called them. You know what that means? That means He's given them an invite. You've been invited in a large group to a party. It's a rich man's house. There's even parables in the Bible saying that exactly. You've all been invited. Everybody in the community is invited to this huge party. You've received an invite. When you reached out to him, he said, I've got a calling and I'm calling you. And see, I have the ability and the position that I stand in to recognize that Louis has a calling on his life. So I invite Louis to the ministry And say, Louie, I think what God is doing with you is assistant pastorship. I recognize a calling on Omar's life. And I say, you know what? I feel like God is calling you to be an assistant pastor. I can recognize a call on Don's life and Nicole's life saying, you know, for better or worse, I know that God has called you guys as ministers and you have a gift of outreach. I see a, a gift on John's life and I called and I could say, John, I see a calling. And John says, I cost this much. And I say, I can give you this much. And then John comes. I was talking about money. Y'all think I'm still talking about myrrh and stuff. No, I had to pay him, but he's worth it. So you have a calling on your life and that's great. That's great. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are invited. You know what chosen means in the Greek? Same root, different word. Chosen means picked out. In other words, we've all been invited Very few of us will be picked out of that crowd. Why is that? Because the majority of the crowd is standing up, enjoying the party. There are a few that are down on their knees saying, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be. Everybody brought some kind of a problem to the party. Everybody brought some kind of an issue. 
Everybody brought some kind of a battle. The majority of the people, they dressed it up and put makeup on it and nobody will ever know. But some of the people, it's impossible. And they've decided, you know what? I don't care what the person on my left hand thinks. I don't care what the person on my right hand thinks. I'm going through a thing and this party ain't going to solve it. There's not enough punch in the world. There's not enough cake in the world. What I need to do is hit my knees in the middle of this party. And maybe the master of the party will have mercy on me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. There's a few that are willing to pay the price. There's a few that exude the myrrh naturally. So I can call Louis to assist in pastorship, but I cannot choose him for the anointing that God wants to give him. Maybe he's walking in. Maybe he's not. It's not my call. I can let Omar in. I can invite him, but I can't choose him. I can let Don in. I can invite him, but I can't choose him. Let me tell you a secret. You have issues. And I have issues. You, are you called? Yes, you are. You want to be chosen? You got to start letting God deal with those issues. Here's what a called person sounds like. Well, that's just the way that I am. Here's what a chosen person sounds like right before they get chosen. Nevertheless, not my will. You don't have a filter, might want to start developing one. You get offended easily, you might want to work on that. Somebody at church didn't like your shirt? That offended you? Okay, let them know or wear a different shirt. Don't put it in the comment box. I'm not even going to pray about it, I promise. Sorry. Called people say, that's just the way I've always been. And you know what? There's a lot of called people in heaven. And we'll see you there and God bless you. But if you want to have a little more fun while you're here, you say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I tried to play soccer every year of my life after I felt the calling of ministry. I did that because I played semi-pro at the age of 17, and I thought I was really something. And even when I decided to take a couple years off, gained a little weight, lost a little speed, thank God I still have all my hair. I decided, you know what? I'm going to try it again. It's rough. Got my three miles down to under 18 minutes. Got a setup with the Houston Dynamo to go have a tryout, and I said I need six months to get back in soccer shape. I'll see you there. Long story short, uh, a couple years ago, I had to have surgery for a sports hernia on my right side. Growing up playing soccer, no injuries ever. God, God told me every year that I picked up a soccer ball in order to try it again, not just have fun, but try it again. That ship has sailed. It's not what you're called to do. No, no, no. I'm going to be, I'm going to make, I'm going to be like the oldest guy to make professional soccer team, and then I'm going to give you glory. I'm going to be the, I'm going to be Tim Tebow of the MLS. Nope. Not what I called you to do. No, no, watch. Okay. <laughs> Snap. Oh, that never happened before. So I can't do it now. It's impossible. I don't think I would have had to suffer that if I would have just given up a long time ago. Oh, I know I wouldn't have because I wouldn't have been running around trying to kick a soccer ball. So how would it have happened? I don't know. My point is, that's a big part of me. And my family knows that was a big part of my life for so many years. When I looked in the mirror, I saw a soccer player. I didn't want to set that down. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done.